right. Well, good morning. If you're uh, new with us, my name is Tim Deal, and I'm one of the pastors here at Quinos Community Church. Um, if you've been around for a while, you know that um, working with tools is not necessarily uh, my comfort zone. It's not the thing that I just kind of do well. So when we first moved into our current house, uh, probably about 13 years ago now, 14 years ago now, um, we, uh, a lot of folks came over to kind of help us do some things. There was some work that needed to be done. A lot of folks actually from Koinos who would show up. And generally one of the you know, first things, once we identified what we were going to do, whether it was you know, like hanging a ceiling fan or, or putting cord around on the floor or whatever it was, um, they'd say, hey, do you have some tools? And so I would go and I would get my tools, because of course I had tools, and I would bring them in the little like plastic Sears kit that I had since uh, I graduated from college, a little gift my dad had given me, and I'd open them up, and they would inevitably see them, chuckle, and then go out to their car and get their tools and bring them in, and I would recognize, like, oh, there's, there's a significant difference between the tools I have and the tools they have. And part of that is... I didn't really understand the situation I was getting myself into. I'd never done lots of work around the house, and so I just didn't know what was needed. And when they brought their tools, it became clear like, oh, these are the tools necessary to handle the job that we have to do, not mine. And I think, you know, obviously, Whatever you're dealing with when it comes to home improvement or, or problems at work or, or wherever you're dealing with them, the size of the problem determines the tool that you're going to use. If you don't bring the right tool to it, you're going to have lots of issues. Well, we're continuing our series that we've been calling Cross Vision. Uh, this is our second week. Uh, Dan opened it up for us last week. And in this series, we are looking at how the cross shapes the way we see everything. And Dan started us last week thinking about how the cross shapes the way we see God. But now this week, I want to take some time to think about how does the cross shape the way that we see ourselves? This kind of ancient device that was mastered by the Roman Empire to maximize public shame and humiliation, pain, it was a torture device. And yet, it tells us something really deep about who we are and the nature of our situation as human beings. We're going to look at how Paul, the apostle, kind of lays this out for us. We're going to begin in his letter to the Romans. This is some of the kind of most detailed uh, explanation of our condition as human beings. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. And we're gonna, it'll be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, you can just read along with us. We're going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 21. Paul writes this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ, who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many. 
through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's a a lot there, but as Paul kind of lays out our condition as humans, it's not particularly great, right? Like our status as people prior to Jesus is one mired in sin. Now, when we think of sin, uh, we tend to think of it a little differently than how Paul talks about it here. We tend to think of it as like the bad things that we do. So lying, stealing, uh, you know, if you want to ramp it up a notch, maybe it's it's murder. Um, Those kinds of things we think of as sin. They're, They're the bad things that we do. But the biblical idea that you see here that Paul lays out is a lot more complicated, a lot deeper than simply the bad things that we do. As Paul talks about this idea of sin, you get this sense that it's not just something that we do, but it's something that kind of is at work behind the scenes, something that actually enslaves us. And the problem of reducing sin to simply the bad things that you and I do is it really misunderstands the problem at hand. It brings the wrong tools, if you will, to the issue. Because if it's just the wrong things that we do, then you and I need to start doing better things. But if it's something deeper than that, then maybe we need something bigger than just changing what we're doing, being better, thinking differently. Maybe we need something different. Theologian and pastor Fleming Rutledge says it this way. She says, Sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as it is an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling, imprisonment, and death, the utter undoing of God's purposes. Misdeeds are signs of that agency at work. They are not the thing itself. It is the thing itself that is our cosmic enemy. Right? So, so what she's saying and what she's pointing to that Paul is saying is that the problem is not simply the misdeeds or the bad things that you and I do on occasion. It's actually much deeper than that. It's the thing behind the thing. It's the malevolent force at work that brings about the desire in us to even do these things or the, the misunderstandings that lead us to do the things that maybe otherwise we might not find ourselves doing. And we're really uncomfortable with this idea as Westerners, this kind of idea of us um, as people who are enslaved to this malevolent force. Uh, we, we generally like to think that we're kind of good people who, if you know, all other things being equal, would do good things. 
I mean, I think about um, the, the kind of popular uh, song that Luke Bryan sang in uh, 2017, the I Believe Most People Are Good. I, now, I want to say, I do recognize this is the second sermon in a row that I'm, I'm quoting a country music song, and I can only blame my wife and children for this. But um, if you're familiar with this song, uh, the chorus goes like this. He says, I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. And that's how we kind of like to think about ourselves, right? Like, most people are genuinely good, and, you know, if, if they're given the opportunity, they'll do the right thing. And I think part of why we believe that is because we like to think that we're pretty good, that, sure, I, I don't always do the right thing, but I, I don't intentionally hurt people. I, I would never intend to do someone harm. Like, my, my intentions are good. Sometimes I make mistakes, sure. But aren't people genuinely good? Nietzsche, in thinking about uh, our nature, said this. He said, most people are far too much occupied with themselves to be malicious. And I think he's on to something there, right? Like, most of us, we don't, we don't do bad things. We don't hurt other people, whether it's our spouse or our children or our friends. We don't intentionally hurt people. We're not malevolent in our intent. But we can't get out of our own way. Often we're so preoccupied with ourself, with the things that we want, that we end up accidentally, inadvertently, causing pain and suffering to others. It's not that we want to be bad, it's that we're drawn to ourselves so much that we can't get out of our own way. But that kind of points us back to what Paul's talking about, to what Rutledge was kind of expounding on, this idea that it's not just the thing that we do, it's the thing behind the thing. It's what's going on that makes it difficult for you and I to get out of our own way. It's the 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 self that keeps kind of inserting itself between us and others that makes us do things that maybe we regret later. Paul himself in Romans chapter 7, just a a few lines later, says, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do, I I don't want to do. This way in which we can't get out of our own way, it's like there's something going on that's bigger than us that sometimes causes us to make choices that we actually regret that we wish we didn't do. I'm sure you've had that experience. I know I have. Where you're kind of reflecting back on something you said, and you're like, man, why, why did I respond that way? Like, why did I say that? Why did I, why did I choose to do that in that moment? I, I know better than that. Sometimes what we want to do, we don't do. And what we do, we don't want to do. And what that points to is the reality that there's something at work. And this doesn't mean that we're not responsible for our actions. Certainly we are. But there's something bigger going on behind the scenes that we're enslaved to. This malevolent force of sin. It's why you've certainly, I know I have, especially recently, had the experience where someone you admire, maybe a leader, whether it's a Uh, a Christian leader in some realm or maybe, you know, a a favorite teacher or coach you had or maybe even a politician or something. 
that you really looked up to and admired had some fall, right? They did something almost monstrous. And, and you can't understand how that person who did so much good could be capable of doing that thing. Or maybe it's a family member who's gotten caught up in just unimaginable lies around like conspiracy theories and, and you just, you can't understand how they have gotten to where they are. I mean, this is the person, maybe it's a parent or an older sibling or someone who, who you looked up to and now suddenly you just don't even understand. You're like, who are they? How did they get there? It's not, it's not that we're all kind of unable to, to make decisions. We're, we're choosing these things. We're, we're complicit. We're responsible for our choices. And yet, there's something greater at work behind us, around us, that's making it difficult for us to even get out of our own way. That's causing us to make choices that we don't want to make, to create divisions between people that otherwise, we otherwise love and care for to do things that actually hurt people that maybe we intended to help. All of this stuff points to the fact that we're enslaved, that there's a malevolent force at work behind us. I mean, you kind of think the Matrix, right? Like, this is one of the things I've, I've loved about that series, this sense of humanity as enslaved to these forces at work behind the scenes that they're not even aware of. And if that's the case... It's important for us to realize it because it points us to something. It, it, it points us to needing more than what we would need otherwise if it's just bad people making bad decisions. And I think this is why the cross is so helpful in terms of understanding our own condition because it points to two, uh, well, lots of things, but I think at least two things that are critical for us to understand about who we are as people. And the first one is simply that our situation is far worse than we'd like to imagine. Again, you know, we like to think that good people do good things, bad people do bad things, and it's that simple. But if you stop for half a second and think about that, you know it's not true. All the time, good people do bad things. People that we look up to and admire make decisions that we don't understand. We ourselves make decisions that we're ashamed of. The problem is not that we are nice people who are sometimes not nice and we just need to learn how to be more nice. The problem is that we are image bearers of the creator who are enslaved to a malevolent force that sometimes makes it really difficult for us to get out of our own way, to see clearly to even know what decisions we ought to make. And if we misunderstand that, the cross kind of brings that in perspective and shows us the depth, the, the need that we have. Because if we don't understand the depth of that, we might think, well, what we really need is, you know, different political leaders who can make the right laws so that we just know what we're supposed to obey. Or we need... Uh, a, better teachers who can teach us the right things so that we understand what it is we need to do. But when we look at the cross, we understand that what we need 
is not a teacher or a political leader. I mean, that's what the people were looking to Jesus for, right? Like, Jesus was a, a great teacher, greatest one, in my opinion, we've ever had. Jesus, they wanted him to be a, a, a political and military leader. But we didn't need a teacher. We didn't need a political or military leader. What we needed was a savior. We needed someone who would rescue us from our slavery, who would go to the, the end of it all to bring us back, to, to set us free. The cross shows us how desperate our situation was, that the creator of all things didn't just need to give us some information. He needed to give us himself fully in love on the cross. But as much as the cross shows us that our situation is far worse than we'd like to imagine, it also shows us that you and I are far more loved than we'd ever imagined. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, this. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The cross shows how big the problem was, but it also shows the extent to which God's love for us took him. It shows how deeply we were loved. And it's understanding that love, how much God loves you and me, that allows us to actually understand the depth of our sin. It's only from the vantage point of love that we can actually see our sin. You know, we, we tend to equate, I, I think part of why we avoid talking about things like sin so much is because we tend to equate sin and shame, right? So we talk about the bad things that we've done and it makes us feel ashamed of ourselves. And, and in the past, sometimes we've actually played off of that, right? Like we want you to feel shame because you're a bad person and that might motivate you to make better choices. But that's not at all what we see in the gospel, in, in the cross. In the cross, we can only understand the depth of our sin from the vantage point of understanding the depth of God's love. It's only when we understand how much we're loved that we can actually understand our sin condition. That might be a little confusing, so I want to read to you something that I think illustrates it really beautifully. In, um, in Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion, she includes a story of Karl Barth, German theologian, who was preaching to some, some men in a prison. And as he preached to them, he was trying to get across this idea of God's grace or God's love for us. And he shared a story, uh, a Swiss legend. And I, I want to read it to you from Rutledge's book. These are Karl Barth's words, again, in a sermon to a group of inmates. He says, you probably all know the legend of the rider who crossed the frozen lake of Constance by night without knowing it. When he reached the opposite shore and was told whence he came, he broke down horrified. This is the human situation when the sky opens and the earth is bright, when we may hear, by grace you have been saved. In such a moment, we are like that terrified rider. 
When we hear this word, we involuntarily look back, do we not? Asking ourselves, where have I been? Over an abyss in mortal danger, what did I do? The most foolish thing I ever attempted. What happened? I was doomed and miraculously escaped, and now I am safe. You ask, do we really live in such danger? Yes, we live on the brink of death, but we have been saved. Look at our Savior and at our salvation. Look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know for whose sake he is hanging there? For our sake, because of our sin, sharing our captivity, burdened with our suffering. He nails our life to the cross. This is how God had to deal with us. From this darkness, he has saved us. He who is not shattered after hearing this news may not yet have grasped the word of God. By grace, you have been saved. I think that's a a powerful image, right? Like this writer who only understands the danger he was in from the, the vantage point of safety, right? Where he looks back and goes, oh my gosh, I was, I was over a lake, right? It illustrates amazingly the vantage point of our sin from the cross. That we look and we see the, the situation that we are and have been in, this, this enslavement to sin from the vantage point of being set free by the love of God. And so when we look back at our sin through the cross, our response is, isn't shame. It's more gratitude. It's joy. Because we see that we have been set free by the love of God in Christ on the cross. This is the idea, even though it was certainly before the cross, as, as Eva read from Psalm 51, and you hear the psalmist cry out, Create in me a clean heart. We can cry out to God to forgive us, to set us free, understanding that his love is enough. That in the cross, his love did what only his love could do. It saved us. It set us free. As Paul, again, says in the passage we read, verse 21 out of Romans 5, Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The cross tells us that our predicament is severe but so is the love of God in Christ. We are loved so deeply that we are set free from sin and slavery into eternal life with God, now and forever. And this is what we celebrate as we take communion together. As we come around the table and and take bread and juice, we remember both our predicament, our situation as people enslaved to sin, but also how deeply God has loved us in Christ. And so we view our sin with gratitude, knowing that we have been set free in Christ in his death on the cross. So as we take communion together this morning, Wherever you are, you know, as you have the elements that you have, you know, if, if you forgot and you've got a little bit of toast left over and maybe just a wee bit of coffee, that'll do. 
Um, but we, we bring these elements together to remember both our situation, but also, and even more so, God's love for us in Christ that we see on the cross. So I'm going to read um, the, the liturgy that Paul gives us. This is what we'll typically read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's instructions, or I'm sorry, chapter 11 actually, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's instructions on taking uh, communion or the Lord's Supper together. And as I read, uh, you'll kind of see there's instructions for how we take the bread first and then the juice. And so I just want to invite you to take them together with me as we read through this and remember the depth of God's love for us in Christ. Paul writes, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Father, we, um, as we look at the cross, we are struck by um, what we don't often want to acknowledge as true, that we are in a battle not just with bad choices we make, but with this malevolent force that exists kind of beyond us and around us, influencing our our thoughts and our choices and making it difficult for us to get out of our own way. But we also see the depth of your love that you have set us free into relationship with you and eternal life now and forever. Would you well us up with gratitude as we reflect on these things today? Bring us joy and peace and a renewed sense of understanding of how deeply you love us. And would that love set us free to live in a way that reflects your love? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.